0: Welcome to the Script Lab Podcast. I'm your fellow screenwriter and host, Shani Edwards. When I bring up the poet Emily Dickinson, do you immediately think of a hysterical recluse who locked herself in her bedroom and never wanted anyone to read her poetry? Well, that's what I used to think, at least until I saw the new film Wild Nights with Emily, starring the hilarious Molly Shannon as America's most misunderstood poetess. Today I talk with the film's writer-director Madeline Alnick about the process of turning her stage play into the film Wild Nights with Emily and what all screenwriters need to know about writing a biopic. So hi Madeline. Hello. We're here to talk today about your fabulous movie Wild Nights with Emily. Thank you. I understand it started as a play. Yes. And I'm sure I have many listeners that have written plays that would love to turn them into movies. So I'm wondering if maybe we could talk a little bit about what that process was like for you.
1: That's a really good question. I've been through that process twice now because I've made two plays into feature films. Wow. Um, My first um, feature. Codependent Lesbian Space Alien Seek Same originated as a play, and this movie also Wild Nights with Emily originated as a play. With Space Aliens, in a way, it was easier because that was a play that was written to seem like a movie. <laughs> oh, okay. So, and usually, as a playwright, my I always wrote scenes that were uh, very short. Um, I always had a million locations. All the things that work against how theater normally is, usually they're big on the one really nice set, the one big location. I was always changing locations rapid fire. So, and with my play Wild Nights with Emily, it was probably the most theatrical play I'd ever done, and long, long scenes, you know, et cetera. Um and we also used a lot of Emily Dickinson's poems and letters because that's a very standard stage convention is to have to have someone standing reading something, very conventional, sure. reading a monologue, reading a letter, reading a poem. Sure. Um, that that play was in nineteen ninety nine when if you can imagine what it was like to tell The story of Emily Dickinson's lifelong romance with another woman in 1999. Tell me, what was that like? It was amazing. I mean, it was people loved it, and it was so exciting. But we also got a lot of reviews. Even though the reviews were good, they all presumed I was making this up. Interesting. Um, Like, her imagines. Not only imagines. What would it be like if Emily Dickinson had? You know, just it was. It was kind of amazing. Um, and possibly, partially because of that innate bias, that was one reason we did include so much, so many letters, mm-hmm. almost because they almost acted as proof for the actual relationship. Um, with the movie, um, I want—I know people go to the movies to see things, mm-hmm. and so I didn't want to rely as heavily on as many letters. But what was interesting to me was since we did have to conceive of the poems, I mean, or I conceived of them in an entirely different way for the movie and actually changed a lot of the ones that I had used. I wanted to make the poems into experiences, the way that film can allow you to experience something. I think it's a shortcoming of many literary biopics that we, we understand a little more about the writer's life, but we, we don't fall in love with an idea of theirs or an expression of theirs, um, because that's why we're even making a biopic about writer is because they had great ideas and great ways to put things into words. So I wanted people to, to really experience the poems, and I really spent a lot of time thinking about how the poems were going to work, Including, I didn't want it to be the same every time. I didn't want the audience to get into a mode where they're like, oh, here comes a poem, and I'll just check out kind of thing. And I wanted the words of her poems, which are can be very dense, her writing, to still be able to land and register and people understand um, and again experience them. And so at one point, someone who had seen this stage play came to one of our screenings and was like, oh, there's so many more poems and letters in this version, Ugh. which all they were saying was, I'm experiencing them more, um, because there were actually less. So that was exciting to me. I felt like we must have succeeded, because people are really feeling these poems now. Well,
0: sure. I mean, when I was in film school, they always said, well, the most boring movies are about writers, because... What do you want to watch? Somebody just sitting and writing, like that's, you know. But you were really successful in, like you said, making the poems into experiences. Maybe you could talk about one of the scenes where you knew that you were able to successfully do that.
1: Well, uh, Emily Dickinson's poem, Um, I Died for Beauty, which is a reference to Ode to a Grecianone by Keats. Beauty is Truth and Truth Beauty—that is all you know on earth, and all you need to know. And so it's this poem by Dickinson that starts, "I died for beauty," it goes something like, "What was scarce uh, adjusted in the tomb when one who died for truth was laying in an adjoining room." He asked me softly, "Why I failed for beauty?" I replied, "And I for truth, themselves are one; we brethren are." So it was about these sort of sister states of mind, brethren—you know, sister, you know—so. One died for beauty, that's Emily, you know, in, in her imagination here for her poetry and her love, and he died for truth, and I made that character uh, into a Civil War soldier that we had seen in a previous scene. Mm-hmm. He was someone who died for truth. We understand from the scene that he's in that he's in a truth um, that is not is not going to be well-led, his um, Colonel only experience is that he's a poetry editor. <laughs> I mean, this is, that's all true. So um, so if the, those two can if he came back from that other scene, the way that people would relate to that part of the poem, and the two of them next to each other, and then we had about, you know, you're dead, you're buried, and then, like, Moss is growing up, you know, over you, like, and and so we did this incredible pra- practical, and we did it with real moss. We we hand shaped it. It wasn't like a VFX, and we right. didn't take it to a studio. It was like a handmade special effect, and I think for that reason, it looks it's more striking. It, yeah, for um, sure. And we tried to. Uh, I thought about. Uh, And this is maybe a good thing to think about when you're talking about biopics, about writers. You think about what their work was like as a writer, and what areas were they going into that other people had not And what is the film language that resembles that? Great. I mean, this is really fascinating stuff.
0: One thing that is really striking to me, and I write biopics that are mostly dramatic. About writers? No, mostly about scientists.
1: Oh,
0: okay. Um, so, but they're dramatic stories.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you did this one as a, a comedy. And I just want to know about your process, your thought process, and why you saw this as a funny story. I mean, it's like the movie. is hilarious. I don't know if her life was hilarious. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It mm-hmm. seems kind of tragic in a way that she had to hide who she was.
1: It did... I'm normally doing comedies. Mm -hmm. In fact, I know this is the funniest movie about Emily Dickinson anyone will ever see. Sure. But at the same time, it has more serious parts in it than I've ever had in any movie or play of mine. Sure. Um, One of the things I was surprised to learn about Emily Dickinson um, because I had only heard all of the same stories that else had heard. She was miserable, she was a recluse, I mean, you know, it's really, she's always painted as a mentally ill figure. Yes. Um, but, so I was so surprised to learn that she had a wonderful sense of humor. And there's wit in her poems, and in her letters, and she had a really um, warm approach to life. And the story itself, of how her life was sanitized for the public, comedy is described as the juxtaposition of opposites Mm -hmm. and that she was so in love with Susan and had this lifelong romantic relationship, had an affair with a second woman, Kate, and then the truth of her life would be so revised from that, the juxtaposition of opposites, struck me as so funny. Mm -hmm. Um, And also was funny was these letters have been sitting out there forever, and they're so obvious. It's really hard to understand. Like, really? Like, people have been able to read this letter? Like, not just, wait, is this an erased letter? No, this is this is a letter that was never tampered with? Really? You know, people, it's hard for people to wrap their mind around how this great revision came to pass. Yeah, and, um, I know I read
0: about there was some spectrographic yeah. technology that helped kind of restore this idea that she did have this long
1: mm-hmm. romantic relationship right, with Right, right. But actually, of the letters, the, those were only 11 um, notes where Susan's name was the recipient training was erased. There's other letters where Emily, Emily wrote to Austin, her brother, about Susan. Um, But then there have been all these other letters that have just been sitting there. I mean, they were published in 1998, Um, other scholars have had access to it. It was really, um, your writers who I'm sure follow the history of uh, screenwriters during the blacklist, in 1951 when this book came out about Emily's affair with Kate, that was written by a scholar, it was The Height of the Red Scare and homosexuality was equated with communism. Really? And the Dickinson people, folks who were curating the Dickinson legacy were panicked. Like, what's going to happen now? Like, she's going to be yanked from the schools. She's going to, you know? Uh So quickly, the daughter of Mabel Todd put together these scraps of paper named them the master letters, and thus began all this speculation, who is master, who is the man who Emily Dickinson was in love with, this big, you know, story to take everyone's focus, um, and went to the scholar at Yale who wrote this book that won the National Book Award. Mabel's daughter had gone and made her, made him, like, literary executor in exchange for writing this Um, story of the mother and made Susan not exist, because they all hated Susan, perhaps had the family. Susan is Emily's beloved, and um, it was a big purposeful snow job. It's sort of like, I mean people hook on, I first heard about the spectrographic technology in that article in the Times in 1998, but the reality is that more of this has just been hiding in plain sight. Um, and that image we had of Emily Dickinson was so large in midlife, even when people did come across these letters, they couldn't incorporate it into this other piece of information we had about her. Yeah, and what's even more shocking, I guess it sh-
0: shouldn't be shocking, but it's that a woman did this no job on the woman.
1: Well, I think that she was smart in that she had already, like in the movie, you see that the mistress of Emily Dickinson's brother had, and this is true, she, Mabel Todd had wanted to publish her love letters with Emily's brother while they were having an adulterous affair in Amherst, Massachusetts, while they were both married to other people, having this adulterous affair, she wanted, she had asked Austin Dickinson, look, these letters are so beautiful, I want people to read them, let's put them together in a book, and he was like, are you out of your mind? Of course you can't. So she had had her own um impulse, her creative impulses tidied up and thwarted. Mm-hmm. Um, so once Emily, it was after Emily's death that she um, was called in by Emily's sister Lavinia Dickinson to, to put together these books. Um, Lavinia had initially gone to Susan, but Susan was grieving Emily, the loss of Emily and the loss of her eight-year-old child who had died. Um, and take Lavinia felt like she was taking too long. So she took the papers back from Susan, and they went to Mabel. Um, and as we see in the film, uh, Mabel Todd, who put together these these books of poems. Um, but Lavinia, and this should be something your listeners should take heart. The only reason Emily Dickinson was published was because the Dickinson family paid for it. Mm-hmm. The, They could not get published. How Mifflin rejected the first his first book of Emily Dickinson's poems, saying that the rhyme scheme was too clear. And finally they got um, Thomas Niles of the Roberts brothers to publish the book, but he would only publish it if they had paid for all the publishing plates and if the Dickinson family agreed to not accept any kind of royalty. So not only did they have to pay for it up front, but they couldn't. Participate in the back end. Wow. Um, and Thomas Niles said, this is a quote, something like that I do not think it wise to perpetuate the poems of Miss Dickinson. Oh. Um, but for writers, one of the things that I, again, talking about going from a play to a movie, when I wrote the play, I was really interested, I was outraged by the story of the love affair being covered up. But then coming back to it 20 years later, I was as interested in how Emily's life as a writer had been rewritten. Mm -hmm. Um, Because her romantic relationship with Susan, it wasn't just a romance. It was also um, an intellectual relationship and a creative relationship. And she was showing her poems to Sue. She would go and show them and send all her poems to Sue. And she would read them and talk about them. And when Mabel removed Sue from Emily's biography, part of what was removed was Emily's process as a writer. Sure. And the idea also, which I think is very interesting and completely contrary to what we were told about Emily Dickinson, was that Emily Dickinson in her lifetime was trying to get published. Right. She sent nine poems to Thomas Wentworth Dickinson, who was one of the editors of Monthly. She sent her poems to the newspaper, editor Samuel Bowles, things published. Like, that. she sent out her work. Um, and that's not what someone who never wants to be read does. Right. And certainly someone who never wants to be read doesn't write 2,000 poems. Sure. Someone who does that is batshit insane. Yeah,
0: for sure. So you've made two movies out of plays. Do you recommend, did it help you to have the play? And I don't mean creatively. I mean, like,
1: getting the movie
0: made. Does does that help you?
1: Um, that's a good question. I guess what it can do for you is give you an extra. If if the play went well, <laughs> <laughs> and both of both both of those plays were were although they were deeply underground because of the content and the subject matter for that time, mm-hmm. they were plays where we had you know lines around the Um, so I had, I did have a kind of a confidence in their stories. With both of them, you have to go through a process of rewriting and reimagining. And you also have to, what's that expression, you have to be willing to kill your children. Not, no more bigger than in play to movie, because there are going to be things, your favorite scenes from the play, for whatever reason, when you shoot them or reimagine them or whatever, they don't work, and you have to let them go. There was a scene in my first uh, play-to-movie. The there was this game show called Torture Yourself with Details, and the, that the main character goes on. and It worked fine in the play. It was kind of in an unreality or whatever, but like in the literal reality of the movie, it's like, wait a minute, is this character really on a game show? Is she dreaming? Is it? You know, any kind of frame we had for it made it not work, um, and it killed me because I loved that scene. But that's—I um, think uh, I don't know if you've read an excellent book for the be- probably the best book for any filmmaker, writer, director to ever read is—I um, think it's called *When the Shooting Stops*. Ralph Rosenblum, uh, Woody Allen's editor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in that, um, in that book, he has a chapter on different movies he edited it, and there are two different chapters on two different movies that went from plays to movies um, that were really fascinating, um, one of them being uh, the producers and another one being this other uh, one, I can't remember the name of the playwright, but literally doing things like he puts the script on the page. And it was like there was this scene, and you read it, and it's so funny, and you're like, oh my god, this movie could, this could, this scene would, I would just die to have this in my movie. And then talking about why it didn't work out on the shoot, what they didn't get, how it doesn't work, and just that not being willing to let go. You know, that's you have to be willing to let go of things and to cut things and to replace things. Gotcha.
0: Um, What advice do you have for? Uh, any screenwriter who's you know maybe trying to do a biopic or do something
1: that's an unusual story or unexpected story. I definitely would say you know there's the Aristotle quote, maybe it's not a quote, where he says um, when you're telling a story include the things that are important to the story You're telling, you're not telling when you're telling the story of a man's life, don't include everything that happened in his life, but include the things that advance the plot or advance the story of what the story you're trying to tell. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone who is a subject of a biopic already kind of has a through line Mm -hmm. um, because they're so strongly driven to do something, that's why we know about them. But the danger is to try to include everything. Importance that happened to them, or um, everything important that they said, and you still have to find the translation of something or some idea which might have meant a lot to that biopic subject, but isn't going to resonate in the same way with the audience. You really have to take the audience along on the same journey, the same exciting journey that they had in leading to this discovery or making this body of artwork or making this body of literature. It's a ride we're supposed to go along. We're not supposed to sit once we're moved and watch it and watch someone hit all the important points like it's a Wikipedia article or something.
0: Right. It's supposed to be
1: an experience.
0: Wikipedia article, the movie. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for talking to me and the movie is fantastic. Molly Shannon is... I just, she blew me away. I mean, she's always great, but as Emily, she just
1: killed it. Yeah, she's great. She's really great. Yeah. And, and writers who love words will, there's plenty of word love in the movie. You could get a chance to sit inside of language many times. Word love? <laughs> That's going to be my new
0: phrase. All right. All right. Thanks, Madeline. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. You too.